thoughts, maybe, to settle our mind and body. Trying to bring your attention to the here and now. By fully being in sync with your body sensations and the mental states, and then within that, try to calm the mind, calm the body, wherever it takes attention. Thereby slowly, gradually bringing the mind and body in sync. bringing a sense of ease, presence, some clarity and attention to the mind, in focusing on whatever happens to be the object you are relying on or resorting to, to bring the mind in the present moment. And shortly we'll be saying this homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. This very special homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. The very opening lines are common with Theravada and Mayana. Only when it goes into details, there are differences in this particular sutra from which it is drawn from. So it's very unique and very common. Before we say these lines and try to mold our mind along the spirit of these opening lines as well as the following stanzas. We take time here in imagining the merit field with Buddha Shakyamuni in the center, flanked by his 
disciples from all the traditions of Buddhism. Think of them through their qualities. With the arhats, higher beings, bodhisattvas, thanking the Buddha. Think of their graded levels of achievement. At the very least, with a true cessation, that by a true path, how that secures their condition, at least in the corresponding way, from being afflicted by the distorted emotions and distorted perspectives, and thereby freeing them from the resulting karma, and thus from the suffering it would have otherwise entailed. And then think of arhats, arya beings, particularly the arhats, that fully become freed from the bondage of karma and the sufferings resulting from it. Think of the qualities of what took them to reach that state. How many sacrifices, how many discipline, how much moral other practices it took. And likewise of the Bodhisattvas, and Bodhisattvas in the Arya level and beyond. And then thinking of Buddha, the culmination of all the efforts going into disciplining oneself, particularly afflictions to the very root, the subtlest level of laxities, latencies, propensities, together with practice of the six parameters culminating in the consummate state of awakening. Up to them as a role model to follow in their footsteps. Rejoice in the similitude practices that we ourselves aspire for. And undertake the practice on a daily basis. Particularly take joy in the fact that you are inspired 
compassion, empathy. As well as inspirations drawn from the examples, the merits. Let that mind of bodhicitta fill one's mental space, eventually spreading out into your whole being. So that every cell of your being, of your body, is drenched in it. Is motivated by it, activated by it. Amazing how generating bodhicitta that expands to everyone without exception. How that is such an opening of one's heart. All the sentient beings founded on a very solid foundation of acknowledging the reality that we share with each and everyone. The conviction of which come from one's own experience and then we extend it all such things. At the same time, the hope, inspiration, and in some cases conviction in the possibility of change, transformation for the better. That this all enriched bodhicitta that we have just generated make it even more magnanimous, more brilliant, more pronounced. More enriched. Just 
generated to such an extent that yes, its active influence will last much beyond this session and will involve our actions in the coming times, thereby affecting our way of relating and dealing with fellow sentient beings. How in the course of doing so, our self-centeredness, self-grasping is at the receiving end. of being exposed, of being undermined, eventually showing the way to the door, out of ourselves, out of everywhere. Oh, welcome to this yet another session of SNBN. <laughs> SNBN, yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so last time we were dealing with the reflection number. Yeah, we finished off with the reflection number three. Now we are on page 283. Reflection number four. Understanding these points, feel confidence arise in yourself that yes, with effort and training, your mind can be transformed into a mind of the Buddha. Of course, to a certain extent, in this very lifetime, with whatever efforts we have made, we see we witness to the possibility of transforming the mind. That's for sure. It's a matter of whether or not we make effort in that direction. Just as with every compounded phenomena, mind too is no exception to change when efforts are made way to change. We remember the statement by the Kadam Master Chekawa. This mind of ourselves which is defiled, this mind of ourselves with defilements, has only one good quality. In however way you train, it will just follow it. So that's to a certain extent we all are witness to it. And from our own efforts, from our own, yeah, from our own efforts, studying with interest, studying with kind of a curiosity, growing into an interest, followed by making efforts.
That's actually the journey that takes for virtues to be developed within us, beginning with the curiosity, followed by interest in testing it. And then eventually, when we begin to have a slight taste of it, we are then even more motivated and we grow in our efforts. Now the question is, transformation into the mind of Buddha, there's a big leap, big leap from here to Buddhahood. Oh, like His Holiness sometimes, maybe jokingly or maybe with seriousness, says, in a way it is not that far, but in a way it is far. So again, that's not a certain thing. It depends on. But we have to be realistic to our own conditions. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a big leap. This eons in between. But nonetheless, I keep on trudging one step by one step. We can reach there just as Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are have done. And whether they have done or not is quite evident in the case of Buddha and as well as other Arats, in their writings, in their words, in their sayings, of course in their conduct, in their own integrity. One way to ensure that what it rest on is making sure that we follow up, follow our present human rebirth with another as fortunate and endowed human rebirth. I kind of somehow prefer human rebirth than God celestial rebirth. Somehow I don't want to take that chance. <laughs> One could be well off and then be completely lost, direct, distracted, then one will just fall off the cliff. So, and likewise, when we speak of precious human life, precious life, precious in life, complete with the freedom and fortune, we speak of humans. One of the conditions is as human, right? So one way to ensure that is to train in such a way that even if that were to strike that we were to encounter that in any given circumstances, we would be in a mode in a mood of always expecting it, and thus be able to pull up the mindset that would be beneficial and there will be the right mindset to bring in there. His Holiness the Dalai Lama very often shares the practices of past masters. 
There was one, uh, I don't recall the name exactly. He, along with his disciple, uh, would always prepare to be dead by the next morning. So every day when they go to sleep, they would go to sleep with as if they were going to die and not be not awake alive next day. Including including putting their uh, eating balls upside down like that's not going to be used the next day. So not only merely being in that motion of doing so, but kind of mentally doing it. And in a way, it could happen anytime. When we look around, most of the people don't think like that. And we think like, maybe it may not happen, it will not happen. But then it happens, right? In just in front of our eyes, we have seen how many people just didn't make to the new new year. Many died on the new year eve. How come it happened with them, not with us? How could it not happen with us? It could, any time. Like today, I was going to Newport. I said, maybe this is my last day. It, and 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 being very aware that yes. It could happen anything, but not let that throw oneself into a gloomy state of mind, but rather kind of think that, that as a reality, of possible reality. And thus kind of garner the mind strength around that awareness in kind of making sure one goes into it in a not just calm, peaceful state of mind, but virtuous state of mind. Now, we have been into this studies, practice for such, we can't just settle for calm, quiet, ease state of mind. We can do better. <laughs> we know better in terms of what to pull off. I'll try to kind of go into it in the state of bodhicitta, complemented with understanding of emptiness, interdependence, interdependent nature. And when we think of bodhicitta, it is, it is in a way one state of mind, but it is much more than that. It, en- it encapsulates so much. Just think of how to generate bodhicitta. All of that kind of comes to fruition in bodhicitta. And bodhicitta has to retain all the forces of all the, what do you call, preceding cultivations. It's not that you cultivate one and then leave it, forget about it, and then you cultivate. You know, you get nowhere. There's no such thing as bodhicitta. You get with no compassion, no renunciation, none of those qualities together with it. So not only they proceed in cultivation, but you kind of maintain them, and you kind of even strengthen them. And then on the basis of 
while retaining them, then you develop bodhicitta. Then bodhicitta will be bodhicitta will be bodhicitta. <laughs> Otherwise, not. Nobody has an exception. Nobody has a concession. <laughs> So that way, one step at a time. I mean, and that for, for that to happen in a almost natural way, it would be to train in it all the time. I don't know about you. One thing that's challenging is we make these aspirations. But in terms of pulling it off, in actual life. It's like, yes, when we were doing it, it was there, but then the whole day has passed when you have not, have not uh, even had it close to you. I'm thinking of the six, six recollections. How wonderful it would be to have all those recollections every time we do anything. They will touch it in such a way that it will really transform the quality of the work. We'll be doing it with joy of serving others, all of those, and being and being also mindful of the qualities of the Buddha and also his hardships on the path. We call it chakavejupa, chakavejupa. How do you call it? The sacrifices that he made, the hardships that he undertook while pursuing this aspiration a bodhicitta to become fully awakened. It didn't come out that easily. So when we recall, recall Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the practice of generosity, that of morality, and that uh, Dharma, Dharma friend, Dharma supporter, I mean, it's, it's, it's but natural to be to be partaking of those qualities with, within them, and then kind of bringing it into our action, touching our action, words, everything with those inspiration, with those what do you call integrated mixture of good qualities. Qualities. So for a while we have to put up with this effort. Then eventually when you make to the Arya state of being, then yes, we can heave a sigh of relief a little bit. At least now the foot will be on a very foundation, very strong foundation, never slipping back. Every step will be going forward, not backward. That's how then pushing through becomes a little easier. initial times until then, until the first step of, until the first taste of actual true cessation and true path. Until then, we have to just take resort for whatever 
comes along. Be that faith, believe, hope, uh, all of those kind of let them all kind of come together in keeping us on the track. And then once one reached this, the path of seeing become Arya, one would have tasted taste it experientially, personally, the actual true cessation and true path. Thus, even the Maras reach. Mara will be off limit of us. Yeah, that's very. I first, when I saw that, I said, Does it have to wait until then? Can Mara, particularly our own afflictions, but even in the sense of someone who maybe, I mean, sentient beings are so different. Some take interest in harming others, right? Putting it in the obstacle. I mean, it's just, it's just being sentient. We're so complicated beings. <laughs> so when I first thought, so now I said, does it take that long to be off limits from the Mara right? But then at the same time, this practical means of kind of keeping our every moment in check and kind of making special effort in bringing in, bringing along bodhicitta and other practices as much as possible, live into our every step, uh, makes it think, makes it feel like, yes, things can can move forward, can, one can make it possible, one step at a time, one life at a time, to be born, reborn into fortunate, endowed human rebirth. And then, under the force of the uh, acquaintance, familiarity, things would come much more natural. I mean, there are practices, even with bodhicitta, how to make it, because bodhicitta, on the basis of bodhicitta, we take bodhisattva vow, and the vow is until awakening. So literally, we have them over lifetimes. And then there are practices by which we could enhance it stronger, make it stronger, so that we not only have it in principle or in theory, but eventually, actually, meet with the conditions by which we could bring it forth, live into our into our life. And that's what usually very uh, often. 
I'm reminded of the story of Mongolayan and Sariputra meeting with I think that will was it Upali or Ashwajit? Ashwajit, I think is Tadul, yeah. Just mere mention of things come from conditions. And the condition and the things come from causes, the conditions, causes were revealed by Buddha. And so are cessation taught by Buddha. And what what it takes. Just mere slight mention is enough. Condition enough to bring all those memories back, like eons of learning back in the second. <laughs> that's so. That's the quality of mind. And to a certain extent, we can all testify to that. Not necessarily in good qualities or whatnot, but in terms of how so many of the mental habits come so easy. All it takes is just for someone to do it, and then, yes, boom, you already know. Yeah, and now I know, just leave me alone. I, I know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, we have many instances of this, right? I mean, take the, take the case of interest in Dharma. Take the case of how we We vary in how much, how much of a difficulty or not we face in understanding one particular thing or not, etc., etc. Speaking of which, I wanted to touch on this previous uh, question. I don't know. I, I addressed it last time, but I didn't get to check whether you and you you. Uh, whether it got across well or not. Because I, and I'm speaking of this from my own example, from my yeah, from myself. When I was in the school, in the Tibetan refugee school, we used to have a separate uh, religious instructor back then. Now they are called philosophy teacher or something like that, to kind of make it more secular. Because in the school, Students who come are not necessarily Buddhists, and so the instruction, so the hope is for them to not kind of teach Buddhism per se, but morality, good conduct, and based on common sense, scientific understandings, findings, uh, to the extent possible. But back then we used to have religious instructors, uh, mostly Geshe, some Kembos. Wonderful, wonderful teachers. Wow. So, uh, I, when I sat through those classes, every time the teacher would touch on the refuge, say Buddha is the refuge, as a teacher, infallible teacher, Sangha in the company, but the actual refuge is Dharma. Then I would listen to the actual refuge. Okay, actually, the true truth, cessation, true cessation, true path. It's so abstract to me at that time. I was like, oh, 
I've been waiting, waiting, waiting to know the actual refuge that will really actually protect you. But then when it comes to sharing you with me, I'm left with nothing. I didn't retain anything. What? Cessation? What in the world is that? Really, in, when we use this Tibetan term Gogden, Lamden, and I'm lost there, so abstract. But then when I came to dialectic school and pursued um, Dharma studies, began to think of what are the obstacles to our peace and happiness, what is the root of it, and then what is the antidote to it. Then you match the antidote with this, and then you begin to make sense. You make sense of, oh, okay, this will be the path of seeing, or the, this will be the true path. And when you deal with it, with this kind of antidote, which is diametrically opposite to how this this mistaken perception is holding, there's no way but for it to be affected and undermined. And then eventually, when you persist in it, yes, it can get lesser and lesser and lesser. Yes, you can think of, at least think of the cessation of it. Okay, finally, Okay, now Gokten, Lamden is no abstract thing. But I used to struggle with that. I was, wait, 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 wait. And then when, when Gela is kind of giving me, and I thought I have it in my hand, there was nothing left, nothing in that. Because I didn't understand it. So, yeah. So when this, this purity, true purity, freeing from attachment, I did touch on it by saying, Purity here is one purity, purity here is a cessation. And at the very least, that would be the cessation attained at the path of seeing. And because of that cessation, it's corresponding, corresponding to that level of cessation, uh, the corresponding, uh, the respective afflictions, including attachment, uh, would have been, we would have been freed from them. It's not just a mere casual freedom as we talk of, but rather a, a, a real, true freedom, which you're not going to lose at all now. So I wanted to touch on that because it brought me, it brought back my, my memories of being in school, and particularly, I said, how, how, how would I understand Golam Ji the true truth, the truth, the last two truths. Yeah. But Nonetheless, there was some interest in there, and people people were very different in in either taking interest in the Dharma class or not. Some would be so enthused, some would be not that enthused. And then the, the teacher we had was so wonderful. It almost seemed like he had this what we call mijepetingenzi, concentration of not. Forgetting. I had the concentration more not forgetting. Uh, it's almost like he has this concentration. I'll be able to recall and quote from every text. 
and he'll be the same year after year, every year, even getting better. So wonderful. Yeah, it was. He wasn't even Geshe. We found it out. Only now that we became Geshe, we know what it involves. We found it out that he wasn't Geshe. He was preparing for it. Uh, after having been so many years in the schools, preparing for his formal, not that he was not qualified, he was already qualified, more than that. It was very clear. Because of that, we thought he must be a Geshe, but he wasn't. Eventually, after having spent so many years in the school, eventually when he got some time, he went down and sit for a formal exam. So was the case with uh, the the main principal teacher at the dialectic school. He wasn't Geshe at all for his whole life. So when we referred to him, we referred to him as Gen Losan Gyaso. Others would say Geshe or not, but he was again well qualified, far beyond. Likewise, I heard is the case with Lama Yeshe. Lama Yeshe. He deliberately, he deliberately skipped. <laughs> yeah, with that kind of a confidence, we can make a sense, yes, how skipping that would even be better. But for some, it can be a trap also. Because having done that, now I have a considered thought that I have done it, not many others do it. I have to be very, very, very careful. <laughs> but he stood very steadfast in that and then perfectly enjoyed it. Yeah, so transforming it into the mind of a Buddha, I will think of how will hinge on making sure we have fortunate human rebirth one life after the other. That's crucial, otherwise we will be making two steps forward, four steps back, who knows, in between so many eons. Oh, that would be. That's exactly how we might have been in this condition for eternity, with eternity going in the past. Yes, this leads me to the other question also. I think there is an assumption embedded, an assumption underpinning there. I may be wrong, but this, I cannot posit a reason for why some beings would progress more quickly along the path than others if we have all done everything. Everything, quote unquote, samsari. Everything samsari. Not necessarily everything. Beyond samsara, no. Um, there are so many things we can think of. Now we know how many things we have never even touched, even thought of in the past, in, in, in the eternity going past, right? And for sure, part of seeing we have never had it. And it's still not with us, not with me, I, I don't know for you. <laughs> so, so the, I think done everything samsari. Even there is also no guarantee. So I think that that's where the problem or, or, the, or the, the, the difficulty in reason, reasoning lies, I think. I may be wrong. There is an a, assumption here that everything samsari, we should have all done it and done it equally. There is equity, equity. 
equitable distribution. <laughs> that is, I think, not necessarily the case. Some could have spent the majority of the eternity into godly beings, some into human, but, not, but maybe once or twice in just about everything. But there is also no guarantee. We have been tossed, right, by the force of karma and afflictions. And depending on what the karma and the afflictions we have, we will toss there. It will not say, now you go there, you haven't been there, go there. Now, what about this place? You have never been there, go there. <laughs> That's not the case. So the probability is that we might have done everything. But when it comes to possibility of not having done anything, something, that is not denied. That is not, possibility is still there, that we could have skipped. Even in this past eternity, we could have skipped being in that place, being, being, I mean, that brings the question about whether everyone has been your mother or not. There also we have to think very practically, clearly. It is possible that mother had bumped into one being, at least up till now, who knows, going forward. Possibility is there. The probability is very little. We have a saying in Tibetan, Sita Gagba, Possibility is not completely, what do you call, not completely uh, eliminated, yes. Just barely not eliminated. So, what, because how we are born in the samsara, what we have gone through, is all dependent on our karma, our afflictions, our karma. And that too, what ripens at the time of death. In terms of taking birth, that's the, that's the uh, crucial timing. Likewise with other situations. If we take just the case of being reborn into what will uh, ram or particular mm, being. It all depends on that condition, not on the basis of whether you have been there or not. Or the, the, there we cannot speak of uh, equitable distribution. If we expect equitable distribution, then everyone should be equitably uh, performing the Dharma and everything equally. That would make us mechanical, right? almost mechanical. That's not the case. That's the reason why our intention, choice, is very crucial. In the case of sentient beings, the difference is because of what we choose to do, how we choose to spend our time, how what we choose to direct our attention on, spend our time on, etc., etc., etc. Of course, there will be conditions, factors, you know, Influencing it, but nonetheless, the crucial timing is when you make the decision. And that could be coming along like this, and at the very moment it could go like this. 
that's the reason why in the scriptures it speaks of, speaks of when it speaks when we come when we speak of interdependence. There is this expression I've heard Kishinishitakela also make it sound the way I heard, which is it's not that something is coming along and forms for 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 long it has been disturbed. It's like moment by moment. Until the very previous moment, things could change. And in our case, that change can be affected strongly, so strongly, by our intention, by our choice, by our interest, where our interest is, what we care to do. So, Kenyi Dibasam is sometimes made to sound like whatever things are is because of whatever conditions it has just met. I'm saying just met, not not from long ago it has been determined, destined to, but it could be f- affected by it. But in terms of what it becomes, it's very much strongly hinges on what the very immediate previous moment has been. Until then, the, 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 the room for change is always there. Not between the immediate cause and conditions and itself. Now there is nothing in between. It cannot come. Until then, change can come. So, so that's what I think. Yeah, we cannot think of equitable distribution here. <laughs> so not, it's not that the Buddhas must have some special qualities. Buddhas weren't Buddhas at all, right? We, we may say sometimes they are lucky, what not, what not. But uh, that's just using a, a common term in, in a contextual sense. But what it is, is how they changed, how they chose themselves to behave and chose themselves to to pursue the decision and the intention. And then there's this question, yeah, the question of why consciousness is able to take up and reside in this formulation of earth, water, fire, wind, but not other combinations. What are those other combinations? From a Buddhist perspective, all combinations are formed of earth, water, fire, wind. When we speak of external conditions, those are the, the formation and the forming factors. It's not that they, they become the forming factors for only those with life and not in any way. When we speak of, when we bring in an e- on top of all this earth, water, fire, wind, we can bring in space on top. Even then also it would be something that all animated and inanimated things will be sharing. From a Buddhist perspective, they will be sharing in those as the, the building blocks. Now when we speak of, so, so that includes life. So the question, interesting, the question of life, 
which we you know which we do not usually speak of in the Buddhist context as much. Life and sentient is different. So, what makes non-sentient life life? In the scriptures, when it comes to defining life, it's quite tricky. <laughs> I still have difficulty conveying that that state, that 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 line in Abhidhamma Kosh, which says, "Sok ni Sok is tse. Okay, first you have to understand. Sok is sok is tse. What is tse? Say usually we mean lifespan. So now let's call it life, vital life force. So then what about so? So is life? Life is a vital force. Maybe it will work. That which serves as the basis for warmth or consciousness. So not even necessarily says life is the vital force which serves as the basis for warmth as opposed to moisture and consciousness. So in a way, for the living beings, life is a must for a consciousness to reside in it, in, in, that, in that physical body. Whereas in the case of non-sentient life, which is also spoken of in, in, the, uh, in, in the scriptures, I recall very clearly a uh, reference to that in Vinaya, uh, in, I think, Shakya Prabhas, Abhidhamma, no, Abhidhamma, Vinaya Sutra. By the way, Vinaya Sutra is written in non-prose, non, what do you call it? Words. I mean, I cannot say non-words, non-prose, right? But it's, it's, it's definitely not, no, 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 like that. It's a, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Then, but still not metric, uh, in, in metric, uh, and not stanza. Uh, so it could be this long, this long, this long, this long, but in bits and bits. So I don't think that is prose, <laughs> nor is it metrical words form. So there it mentions, it speaks of certain, certain weeds, certain uh, plants, which of, of which the life depends on water. When it's taken out of the water, it dies. When it is put in the water, it 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 has life. So it speaks of that in relation to plant. It's definitely not a sentient being, but it speaks of life, depending. So. Yeah, so, 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 
the formulation of earth, water, fire, and wind, but not other combinations. I cannot think of other combinations which are not formulation of earth, water, fire, and wind. Plus, I can even add one to it. Plus space. Now leave out consciousness. Now within that, within that thing, combination, it can be divided into one with the life, other with another, no life. So usually I speak of organic, non-organic, within organic, living and non-living, within living, sentient and non-sentient. Right? But in all of these, the bodily constitutions, the, the bodily aspect, component of it would be formulated by earth, water, fire, wind, plus space. But now, consciousness resides in such a formulation which is capable of sustaining a consciousness for which there is the need of life, which is the life, which is the vital force that serves as the basis for consciousness and warmth. So when it says warmth, I think it has, it, it is referring to things like other things like non-sentient life. But it would be too simplistic to think of what is called to, as warm as such, but nonetheless, uh, it is pointing to something extra needed in such a formation to become life. And on top of that, to become sentient, it has to have the consciousness. So, But then, yeah, we already touched on this, but then the question of why consciousness takes up, takes up temporary residence <laughs> in those is driven by karma. Because of our actions, we are subject to undergo this resultant states of suffering or pleasure or whatnot. And it only makes sense for it to be in a being, or in a body that's capable of undergoing, undergoing that. Okay. Finally. <laughs> so now, that part about transformed into the mind of a Buddha, that's the big leap there. So that needs to be seen clearly. And, and kind of think of what it would look like in my own case of making sure that that connection is maintained. And to a great extent, it will depend on how one dies. And that could happen any time. So that means have to be fully alert and prepared. Be that by taking resort to prayer, all of this, but at the same time, by the force of them, not let, let 
not let any let up in one's actual maintenance of a viable mental state of mentality all throughout. Okay, so now we move on to the next section under the title of Afflictive Mental States and the Nature of the Mind. One moment of an affliction such as anger has two facets, the clarity and cognizance of the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger that pollutes it. Why we call, why we put anger in the mental factor aspect is because it is a mental, mental factor, never a mind. Anger is never a mind. So that's the reason. And what we usually call mind is being uh, substituted here with primary consciousness, which is a better better way of calling it. So, anger has two facets, the clarity and cognizance of the primary consciousness, not saying that the anger itself is primary consciousness, but it has two facets. Facet in the sense that these this mental factors, uh, together with their respective mental primary consciousness, they are so so linked together, so linked together, uh, and each affects each other. They share in what we call the what what do you call chungden chungden nabanga concomitant concomitant five what five no no yeah five concomitant factors yeah yeah. Five aspects of concomitant, concomitant relationship. Yes. May I ask, wouldn't the anger also be clear and cognizant? It seems like there's this statement is separating the two as if the mind, the main mind, has the cognizance and clarity, but the middle factor of anger doesn't. I see. Yeah. If 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 if, if that's what it's conveying, then. That's quite, not quite um, everything, everything mental, be it what we call mind or mental factor, all share in this quality of clarity and cognizance. They all share in it. Uh, but maybe it is for the convenience of touching the topic uh, in making um, the point. I think it comes later on. The clarity and cognizance, because, yeah, when, when we generate anger, it, it has already taken a particular form, be that in respect of what object it is observing at, what kind of apprehensive, apprehension aspect it has taken on. It is very particular. But what that particularity takes form on is its very basic, clear and cognizant nature. It's like the, the glass ball, what do you call it, the paperweight, right? 
clear clear paper weight when put on a dark base it will take on that dark color like that so when it's put on a dark color that's like a particular mental factor or a particular mindset but when it's taken off of it it's the clear and cognizant nature uh, amplified or kind of pronounced but when you put it on the dark base it still maintains its clarity and cognizant nature but now the clear and cognizant nature is kind of directed uh, towards a particular object and aspect apprehension aspect when a mind of anger is manifest again when we say mind of anger it is uh, it is I mean, technically it is problematic but when we not make that stern distinction between mind and mental factor etc then we may speak when a mind of anger is manifest which means when anger is manifest or when a primary consciousness with anger is manifest like that in which case see in the case of these men mental factors so called mental factors it's 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 that they all go together no not all of them but they go in different groups <laughs> they go in different groups like the group of six <laughs> the group of notoriety notoriety <laughs> and the group of who knows 17 18 <laughs> so when they go in groups one of them takes over <laughs> influences everyone so much so that now it looks like the entire body is that one <laughs> in terms of behavior in terms of apprehension what direction all of that including the mind it's not that the mind gets to always boss over <laughs> any group it could be any one of the mental factors taking over so as much as we speak of each mental factor having a distinct function quality what not definition what not it's not that when they are there even manifest they get to express it it's 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 like a gene unexpressed gene <laughs> when when some other gene takes over and supersedes, supersedes it others do not get to express it <laughs> mm-hmm. so likewise when we have a compassion compassion is always a mental factor now don't ask me why okay <laughs> why is bodhicitta always mind why is compassion always mental factor <laughs> you didn't hear this question don't ask me okay <laughs> <laughs> when time is right which is when i know <laughs> then i will <laughs> until then no questions so when compassion arises the mind the so called primary consciousness right together with all of its uh 
its accompanying mental factors. They are all, uh, what do you call, tinged with compassion. So much so that its object, the apprehension aspect, all of them would be similar to, to compassion. So now the question is, why isn't it compassion? Don't ask that question, okay? <laughs> okay, anyway, so depending on which happens to be very strong, but in, in, in all of these cases, it, it's only the mental factors that gets to be the deciding factor. In all of these particular mental modes, it's mental factors that get to determine. Now, when we are in a deliberate state of calm, quiet, deliberately uh, keeping away all thoughts, whatnot, and bringing ourselves in a in a sense of in a state of vacuum, in a sense of no content, etc., then maybe maybe mind finally gets to goes over and express with all the rest, kind of just not caring. To it take over. But whenever a particular mindset is generated, it's always the mental factors. Even in the case of Bodhicitta, it's its accompanying, it's, it's, it's accompanying Dumba. Dumba is aspiration. It is accompanying Dumba. We speak of two aspirations associated with Bodhicitta, one preceding it, the other accompanying it. So it's the accompanying aspiration that decides bodhicitta, to be bodhicitta, and let everything else in the in the company also take on the same form, same shape. Now the question is, no, I will not ask the question because I don't have an answer for that. So. So then the question is, when we generate bodhicitta, is it the mind bodhicitta that is fully active, or the mental factor of the aspiration that is fully active? Are they both, are they both finally, have they both finally decided to sit on the same seat? <laughs> Maybe with bodhicitta you can understand. It is kind of understanding to the dhimba, and the dhimba is understanding to the bodhicitta, and both say, okay, let's go a long way. Okay, so when mind of anger is manifest, these two cannot be separated. Of course, that's very much similar to the glass, the paperweight. Does that mean that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is defiled at that time? Not to its core, but to a certain extent. <laughs> or at least you can say the mind that mind is a mind with defilement. But how, how deep inside it does it go? It's a matter of discussion here. It is with the defilement, but to what extent is it, is it with the defilement? According to Sutrayana, from the viewpoint of the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger, from the, uh, from that, from the viewpoint, 
according to Sutrayana, from the viewpoint that the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger are concomitant in that single mental event, it is said both are defiled. They, they are both with defilement and they are both defiled. But not to their core. <laughs> because they are defiled in the sense that the very nature of clarity and cognizance is, is, yeah, obscured, is defiled, is obscured. But not to its core, right? But not in, not in its nature, but temporarily so. However, this is not the whole picture because anger can be extracted. Now, when we speak of anger being extracted, now the question is, is anger being extracted? Anger as a mental factor being extracted from that group? Or how? How does that extraction take place, look like? <laughs> when anger is extracted, it would have to leave behind its clear and cognizant nature. It cannot take it with it. It cannot say, I own it. No, it, it didn't own it, and it would never own it. So the extraction would have to take place in some other form. Not by getting to take the clear and cognizant nature with it. It cannot get away with it. When, when it is contracted, the clear and cognizant consciousness remains. Yeah, when it is contracted, the clear and cognizant consciousness remains. In the, particularly in, in, in Chittamatra uh, tenet, I think in the more orthodox school, that of Lungi uh, following the Sutra, they speak of uh, the five, like like one hears in in Vajrayana also. They speak of the five Buddha wisdoms being at our sentient being level afflictions. And when and afflictions are contracted, right? When the afflictions contracted, the 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 types of affliction, the, 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 what you call the, the typical aspect of it, say anger, generating anger, anger, like that. the typical aspect of it, the similitude aspect of it, uh, will be left behind, but not its, its, its substantial nature. Even in the case of consciousness, we speak of rik yun ze yun. Yun is continuum. Continuum of the type, the continuum of similitude, and the continuum of the substance. It would have to... So when the contraction happens, contraction happens only at the level of the similitude continuum, not at the level of the substance continuum. Which is to say that the substance, in, the, in this case, it would be the clear and cognizant aspect of it, would continue even into Buddha's wisdom. But for that to happen, it would have to shed its anger similitude aspect. 
and which works perfectly because the antidotes are not necessarily against the clear and cognizant nature. They are against the anger aspect of it. So that's, that's the way to extract it. So when it is counteracted, the clear and cognizant consciousness remains. This consciousness is not... But then, at the same time, we have to know that uh, when, until cessation of one kind or the other, a true cessation of one level or the other happens, uh, afflictions that particular affliction would have to be present all throughout, either in a manifest form or in a potential form. It's not that nothing is left, nothing is, nothing is uh, left on our mind, mental state, and that anger, all of those are only in the manifest form, and they keep, what do you call, uh, switching, the manifest form into neutral, virtues, non-virtues, etc., etc., with nothing being left on the mental stream. Rather, the the propensity, the paksha, the instinct of it would be left. So, counteracting would have to be counteracting in the sense of generating or giving rise to a cessation would have to go go deeper beyond the surface surface manifest form nature but eventually to the in the case of cessation to its root in the case of buddhahood to its very even subtlest traces so to that extent the extraction takes place thoroughly but in none of those cases, the clear cognizant nature is ever affected. This part is very crucial. So that's the reason why His Holiness emphasizes on certain techniques by which we could encounter and come to contact with a clear cognizant nature with almost no particular content in the mind but still be able to feel it that would be the clear cognizant aspect of it and that it has no severance at all at its very subtlest level would be the clear light of the mind and that would have never ever severed ever before and will neither do that. So that's why one clue to that is to think of how when we are born until we die, we are not left with no consciousness. So I'm I'm making this what do you call putting forth this 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 proposition. Even in the case of those who are in comas or not, at least those who come back, they tell a whole lot of stories. A lot is going on, but on the outside, they are just vegetative, right? Vegetative in nature, not this. I mean, there was a story of someone who had been in that coma state for several years, 
and then eventually came out. And then had all these things to tell. Whereas to the, ex to the other people, all it looked was just a lump of flesh with nothing responsive to the environment. But inside, core within him, he was conscious. Not to the external world, but to himself. And then when he finally got out of it, I mean, when you look at how he got out of it, it's so interesting how, how, how bare conditionality, mere conditionality can affect. Okay, I think. Pardon? 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 I see. Uh, it, it was, it was someone playing a music or the sun rays hitting something. Somehow that coincided with with his becoming more and more visibly irresponsive. Mere conditionality. Now here we have to think of. What is this in physics? Uh, entanglement, quantum entanglement. Here we have to, if we have a hard time thinking about it, we have to think of quantum entanglement. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, <laughs> actually, someone, some, some, some university in Norway did some research. Yeah, I'll, I'll come up with it. I'll come up. <laughs> So somebody did send send me the uh, article. It it sounded very convincing in how they how they proved that affecting one was affecting the other. In facing you just deal with this and that automatically changes. It's just the relationship between far or two particles. How in the world could that happen? Oh, okay. You want to go on? Okay, that's fine. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, please. And anyone who has questions, not aside from those I already questioned. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. Um. So, Geshela, this is. Yeah, there's a woman who was in a vegetative state for I think a huge chunk of her life. Mm -hmm. Um, many, many years, and what she could visibly do was move her eyes, kind of moan mm -hmm. sometimes, and then make body movements. And there was this huge debate, should, should like, we cut her life off or, you know. And then this one Lama teacher, Rinpoche, um, looked at her and simply looked at her and said, oh, that consciousness just left the body a long time ago. It's Is that possible that she could just be this animate corpse basically like but but still showing still like moaning or like moving her eyes yeah i don't think because it has left pardon she was on live support i see then you have to see how she behaves once you take it off but with with the life support it doesn't guarantee either way 
Yeah, but this other story, I have to dig it up. When I came here, I thought I wouldn't need all of this. So I <laughs> not only physically, but mentally, but I now uh, think I need to select some of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this, this one was not even showing any responses, not at all. He would have to just bring to somewhere and then take somewhere and for years. I think, what was it called? Was it the first ever program on the NPR new program called In Insignilia or Invisignia? Something, something. There was a, there's an NPR program called the the name is now I better uh, yeah they they still run that program but it was the first program they aired on that new new program I always had my radio tuned on to uh, NPR by the way I left it there my nephew was just waiting for me to let go of it. And when he saw the chance, he just grabbed it and said, Uncle, this I want. <laughs> because it's a very good radio with the microphones attached. Uh, with one microphone there, with the long electric cord. Oh, the sound is so good. <laughs> yeah, so I would always have it tuned to NPR whenever cooking or whatever. Good and good cooking. <laughs> I had to, but I used to make quite a good chai, but not as comparable to the chai that I get here. So, credits, credits too. <laughs> and that's something I look forward to. I have attachment to us. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, invisignilia or something like that. I think it is invisibilia, something. There's a program called that. Maybe, it sounds slightly familiar. I used to listen to NPR radio a lot. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, I think the first program they ran is on this person. Yeah, so it's similar. But but to know whether the consciousness has left or not is very difficult. Very difficult. Very difficult. So if it is on a life support device, it may have left or not, who knows, but it will be very difficult to tell. Okay, so, yeah, the consciousness that is clear and cognizant is said to be pure, while the mental state of anger, which cannot continue on to awakening, is afflictive and adventitious. 
when when anger is active and manifest, we speak of what about the clear and cognizant nature of the anger? Is it anger or not? We say it is anger. In terms of being anger, it is. There's no question. But does it have to always remain anger? No. Almost, almost speaking, like there are two layers. Almost speaking, like the the paperweight and the base. But in the reality, it is even not that. There are not two things. There is just one. Nonetheless, but yeah, in the nature of anger, I'm using it in a uh, what is the expression? Not so literal way. In the nature, in the sense that it still has the same object, it shares with anger uh, the object of observation, the object of apprehension, like this. So it is anger. Yeah, it's very confusing for me to say it is anger. If it's say, if I think of it as it is in the nature of anger, uh-huh. then I can separate the two. But if it it is, it's like saying I am my body. I'm in the nature of my body, but I'm not my body. Very different, very different. Because we are speaking of anger, which is a mental thing, and also we are speaking in rela- its relation to its clear and cognizant nature, which is also mental. So there we can speak of speak of, speak in these terms, but not in the case in the context of a being and a body, which in the first place is not one another. But here, in the case of anger. Anger is a mental factor, and that mental factor is clear and cognizant in its basic nature. When when anger is manifest, its clear and cognizant nature itself is the anger. Other than that, there is no anger. Take that out, there will be no anger. But then the contraction takes place by dealing with not the clear and cognizant aspect of it, but dealing with its particular observant nature, its particular apprehension aspects, and, and, and deal with that, address that aspect. And that's how anger can, be, anger can be contracted. But there, the contraction has not at all taken even a slight chip of of the cognizant and the clear nature. So there's a slight difference, I think. More, yeah, more than that. Okay, you can say one entity, two, what's the expression? Two isolates, yeah. Isolates, it's almost something like a science term. Isotopes. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. One entity. Since we are able to speak of them separately, uh, uh, we can say they are two isolates, but of the one same entity. Yeah, that's slightly better, right? Okay, yes. That for sure is. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah. No, no, it's it's fine. I mean, let's try it. Okay. Okay, so then I will leave it at there. The consciousness that is clear and cognizant is said to be pure, while the mental state of anger, which cannot continue on to awakening, is afflicted and adventitious. Yeah, I think uh, we'll leave it at that note. And afflictions are adventitious. But it is important to think about this, reflect on this. And yeah, so long as it doesn't, uh, what do you call, one doesn't lose the basic principle of it, then whatever approach or way of looking at it works with oneself, that's okay. Uh, but so long as it doesn't uh, take for dealing with anger, for the while dealing with anger, for its clear and cognizant nature to be in any way made to lose any aspect of it. Yeah. Okay. So that's.